Great to be with you today and yesterday. I, I thought I would share um, a little story about my background uh, just to kind of maybe fill in some things uh, for some of you. When I was uh, a little boy, I would go with my dad, uh, Dr. Norman Geisler, when he would debate famous atheists around the country at different times. And I'll be honest with you, um, I always felt sorry for whoever had to debate my dad. Do you know why? My dad was an excellent debater, and he would destroy his opponent. Now, I've learned over the years that some people, some Christians, talk to their non-believing friends like they're in a debate. And the problem is, they win the battle, but they lose the war. And so that's something that's been a real concern of mine. And that's why, you know, over the years, I've really tried very hard to try to take all these good tools that my father has taught me in the area of Christian apologetics or Christian evidences and integrate this in terms of my witness to other people. But learn how to do it in such a way that people actually want to hear more. And I think this is the art that you and I need to cultivate in our lives. Now this morning, what I want to do is kind of take the next step. And we've been talking about this last night. We started out talking about hearing conversations, or we talked about the kind of world we live in and how it makes it difficult for us to witness. And then today we talked about hearing and then illuminating. What I want to do is I want to talk about how we can build bridges to the gospel with people today. You see, it's not just enough for us to listen to people, learn their stories, and begin to hear the gaps in their beliefs, and then ask them questions to clarify their beliefs and surface uncertainty. That's not enough. We actually have to figure out In this world we live in today, how do we actually build a bridge with people when we know all the things that we know about them? In other words, it's not enough just to listen, hear, and ask clarifying questions to people. We need to develop a strategy for witnessing to people over a period of time. Amen? See, we haven't been taught this. I wasn't taught this growing up. I was basically taught you just share a simple track, and if they don't accept it, you you go on to the next one. What I'm suggesting is that you and I develop evangelism as a lifestyle. And for us to do that, we need to build bridges with people, and we need to learn to develop a strategy for how to do this. Now, before we get into some of these principles that we're going to see from Scripture, I want to point out that basically... There are beliefs today that hinder us Christians from building bridges to the gospel with people. And I want to focus on three of those beliefs. Beliefs that hinder us. One, those who don't see themselves as sinners. Those who, do, who don't see the need for radical change. And those who see no difference between Christianity and other religions. Okay, Let me look at those just real briefly. Those who don't see themselves as sinners. Because there are people that don't see themselves as sinners, they have difficulty seeing the need for a Savior. 
This is the problem I face when I'm on a, a university campus and I'm talking to college students. For a lot of them, they don't see the need for a savior because they don't want to be any sin in their life because they don't want to be accountable and they certainly don't want to change their lifestyle. You see, I have learned that college students tell me that the Bible is not reliable, not because they've checked it out. They don't want the Bible to be reliable because then they're accountable. And so you and I need to figure out a strategy for how we can begin to help people begin to see that they are sinners. Look at this graphic for a moment. You see, if I can get someone to admit that they're a sinner, then it's easier for me to get them to admit that they're accountable. Do you see that? And if I can get them to admit they're accountable, I can get them to see that if they look at their life, they don't measure up to God's standards. And if I can get them to realize they don't measure up, then they realize they need an outside source. And if I can get them to admit and there's an, they need an outside source, I can point them to Jesus Christ. Do you see how that works? The problem is, how do you get someone to admit that they're a sinner? Remember, I was talking to a college student a while back, and he had a really nebulous view of God. And so here's the question I asked him. I said, do you determine what is good based on the standard of evil, or do you determine what is evil based on the standard of good? He was kind of taken back by the question. No one had ever asked him anything like that. But he thought for a moment and said, and you'll see this on the video tonight. He said, I determine what is evil based on the standard of good. So I said to him, so good is primary, right? I said, so where did this good moral standard come from? He said, I don't know. But see, if you believe that there is a good moral law, and that's why you can understand what's wrong, you see? You see what we can do? We can help someone to go further. Because then... You can help them to see that if there is a moral law, there must be a moral law giver. And if there's a moral law giver, then, and if we have this idea of justice, we want justice. We want Hitler to be punished. Then our moral law giver must have some form of judgment. And if he does, then maybe we're accountable for our actions. Do you see how that works? But it's not so easy to get people to, to realize that. And so tonight, we're going to talk a little more about that. I'm going to have you think through, how do you build these bridges with someone? But the key is getting them to admit that they're a sinner. You know, Jesus had the same problem. <laughs> Listen, in Mark 2, verses 16 and 17. Listen to this. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat, referring to Jesus, with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, now listen to this, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came to call the righteous. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, Jesus was saying, look, you Pharisees think that you're righteous. So I'm not really coming for you. I'm just coming for those who realize they're a sinner. And that's the problem that you and I have today, is getting people to acknowledge that they're a sinner. Secondly, there are those 
who don't see the need for radical change because they're already going to church. You see, I grew up with some guys. I grew up in a Baptist church, and I'm pretty sure they aren't believers. I don't know if they are now, but they weren't back then. And uh, they were in some pretty bad stuff, pretty bad rebellion. But, you know, as long as you keep going to church, the devil will convince you that there's nothing wrong. Nothing needs to happen. You don't need to radically sell out to Jesus Christ. Just keep going to church. Just don't worry about anything. Just keep doing what you want to do. Just kind of go through the motions. And there are a lot of people in America that go to church every Sunday, let's be honest, that are just kind of going through the motions. This is a group of people we need to learn to reach as well. And one of the ways that we can reach these kinds of people is to begin to help them to understand what I said the other day. That there's a difference between belief that and belief in. And I use this illustration. Let me repeat it again. When I married my wife, Charlene, I believed that she would make a great wife based on the evidence. But the evidence never forced me to say I do. To say I do to Jesus, it's more than just I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. It's I'm inviting him to come into my life, forgive me of my sins, and then repent. Repent means to turn around 180 degrees and go in the opposite direction and allow him to take control of my life. Now, if we have that definition of Christian, that kind of narrows the field, doesn't it? Because we want a Jesus that will help us. A genie in a bottle. That's what American Christianity is all about now. A genie in the bottle. We want Jesus to do something, but I don't want to change the way I feel or my values or the way I want to live my life. Even though Jesus says, if anyone wants to follow after me, he has to what? Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. We don't believe that anymore. And so in our conversations with religious people, we need to help them to begin to understand what it really means to believe in Jesus Christ. And then there's a third group of people. These are those who see no difference between Christianity and other religions and therefore see no need to hear uh, have therefore see no need to hear what we have to say about Jesus. Now, some of these people actually could be in our churches. Because in one sense, they may believe that Jesus is one of the ways, but they may not believe he's the only way. And yet, Scripture says very clearly that Jesus is the only way. John 14, 6, Acts 4, 12, and 1 Timothy 2, 5. See, people who are pluralistic, who believe that basically all religions are the same, Basically, what they're saying is all views are true. But I want you to think about this and help them understand this. If all views are true, then nothing is true. That's kind of deep, right? So let me say that again. If all views are true, then nothing is true. My father would say it this way. A point in every direction is no point at all. See, if you're pointed in every direction, you're not pointed in any one specific direction. Now, let me... Say it in another way. If you embrace everything, you stand for. You see the problem with pluralism? That Christianity is just one of the many different choices today. Here's the other thing we need to help our pluralistic friends understand. 
if there can be no one right answer, how can there be any hope? How can there be any hope? Let me illustrate this. A couple years ago, when I lived in Singapore, Campus Crusade sponsored this religious panel, and they invited me to represent Christianity. And they had different people from different religions, and uh, they were asking all these people these different questions. And someone from the audience very perceptively asked the key question, which is this. How does your religion help you to change man's heart from stop, stopping man from hating other people? How do we, how do we change man's ba- basic nature so he doesn't hate anymore? And I waited. I didn't say anything. I waited to see what all these religious reps would say about that issue. And no one had an answer. And so I said this. I said, Christianity teaches that that same power that rose Jesus from the dead is available to me so that my life can be changed. I can love those who I hate. I can be a better father to my children. I can be a better husband to my wife. Christianity has the answer. If Christianity doesn't have the answer, there is no hope. And we need to help the world understand that. So as you're building bridges with people, can I suggest that you keep these three people in mind as you're witnessing the people? Because you probably know somebody in one of these three categories, don't you? Now, how do we build bridges with people? I'd like to suggest there are four things that we can keep in mind. And these four principles... Again, we can see in Scripture. First, find common ground with those you're attempting to reach. What do I mean by find common ground? Find that point of intersection between our beliefs and somebody else's beliefs. Look at this graphic here. Here is uh, Harry Heathen here on the bottom at the crossroad. And then there's Henry Christian up on the hilltop. Now, Henry Christian is expecting Harry Heathen to climb up his holy hill so they can have a holy huddle so he can share the gospel with them. Anyone see anything wrong with that? What we need to do is find that point of intersection between our beliefs and theirs. I remember talking to a student one day on a college campus, and he said to me that he was so angry at these Christians who had talked to him uh, about Christianity because he didn't believe the Bible's reliable, and he didn't even think, wasn't sure if God existed. So with this student... I talked to him about the issue of truth, and I said, you can't deny that truth exists. And to make a long story short, the last thing he said to me that, that day was this. You're going to have me up all night trying to figure this out. Now, notice the difference. He was angry at the Christians because they tried to use the Bible to prove that Christianity was true. And I just talked about the issue of you can't deny that truth exists. Tried denying it. And he realized he couldn't do it. And it bothered him. He didn't like that. So what was I doing? I was trying to find common ground. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul did in 1 Corinthians 9.22. Listen to this. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all men, that by all means I might save some. Paul understood this principle of finding common ground. And that's what you and I need to do as well, is to look for those opportunities every day, to find common ground with people. Now, there are two kinds of common ground, 
I want to talk about. One is common ground in terms of interest or hobbies, and the other is spiritual common ground. Like yesterday, talking to this Methodist, I found out on the plane, he lives in Shanghai. Well, my wife is Chinese-Singaporean. I know a lot about Chinese. So I had a lot of common ground with him and had an interesting conversation and shared with him insights about the Chinese government and why secretly they're allowing Christianity to flourish. Because they realize that if there is no moral values to their society, their society is going to crumble. And so I had all these insights uh, that he was intrigued by. So I had all this common ground. But we have to start with interest and hobbies and, you know, my children, your children. That's a good common ground. If mothers talking to other mothers, just find that common ground to begin a dialogue. And then over a period of time, you can begin to move towards spiritual common ground. Now, I want you to understand something about common ground. To find common ground, we should look for common agreement. Now listen to this very carefully. Even in our mostly disagreement with others. In other words, you may have a lot of things you disagree with another person on. But what you should do is find that thing that you do agree with them on. Now why do I say that this is a biblical principle? Well... Look at what Paul did in Acts 17. Let me read this for you. This is kind of funny when I read this. I don't know if you find this funny at all. Acts 17, verses 22 to 24. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Now, put yourself in Paul's place. What would you say if you were talking to these people? Well, I mean, you're, 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 you're grasping for some common ground, and you don't have that many similarities, and so, well, at least one thing we have in common is we're both religious. You see what Paul is doing? He's just finding something to connect with, and that's what you and I need to do, even if you and I feel like we mostly disagree with most of our non-Christian friends. We still should find that point of agreement. Let me illustrate what I mean by this. When someone says to me, I believe that all religions are true, do you think I'm going to say to them, no, I disagree with that? No. What I try to do is find common ground first before I show any disagreement with them. For example, I would say something like this. I would certainly agree with you that there are some things. I didn't say all things. There are some things that most religions, I didn't say all religions, hold in common, like being loving or kind to one another. So I do show some agreement. In fact, this was a tactic I used when I lived in Singapore, and a taxi driver would say so many times to me when I got into a taxi, well, you know, basically all religions are the same. And so I would say, you know, I agree with you that there are some things that most religions holding common, like being loving and kind. But then here's what I would say next. But it's not in our similarities where we're distinct. It's in some of our key differences. Then I would say, did you know that there's some major religious faiths have different views of salvation? Do you know there are differences between Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, and Buddhism? And then I point out some of these things. 
Christianity is faith alone and Christ alone. Muslims believe that by doing good works, believing in Muhammad. Hindus believe it's by overcoming your karma with good works. And Buddhists believe it's by getting rid of desire, which is kind of difficult because how do you desire to stop desiring, right? This is a problem. So, so you want to help people understand those kinds of things, right? You see, Paul understood that we need to help people build bridges by finding this common ground first. Finding common ground. But in finding common ground, find agreement, even in our disagreement. Now, if you look in Scripture, you'll see that Paul understood this principle of finding common ground. In Acts 28 and in Acts 17, there's two good examples of where Paul used a different approach in Acts 28 in finding common ground, and he did in Acts 17. See, in Acts 28, he was talking to Jews and God-fearing Greeks. So he basically taught that Jesus was the fulfillment of all these prophecies about the Messiah. But in Acts 17, he talked about this view of the nature of God. And he would start at different points, because he would find out where he could start with them and then build from there. So just keep that in mind. Secondly... We want to build a bridge from a point of shared beliefs. Now listen to this. Even those they're not quite aware of. Even those they're not quite aware of. Do you realize that we have more in common with non-believers than they even realize? Do you know that? Do you know why that's true? is because of how God created all of us. Do you remember what Scripture says in Romans 1, 20? Now listen to this. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so they are without excuse. What does this verse say? It says that knowledge of God, of God's power, and his nature have been seen from what has been made, from his creation. So no man can say, I didn't have any idea there is an eternal power out there. And then Romans 2, 14 and 15 says this, For when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts. In other words, we're all born with a moral law whether we're Christian or not. And these are the things that we have in common. And we can build our bridge from these point of shared beliefs, even if they're not quite aware of these shared beliefs. For example, after 9-11, I mentioned that I talked to this student one day who said that he used to think it didn't matter what he believed. But after 9-11, he now knows it does matter what he believes. Now, think about it this way. If he knows it matters what he believes, it's just a small step to get him to admit that not everyone can be right. Agreed? And then it's just another small step to get him to admit that somebody must be wrong. (laughs) Then you can ask the question, how do you determine who's right and who's wrong? So you see, I had more in common with this student than he realized. The moment that he agreed that it matters what he believes... What I'm saying is that that's what you and I should do when we're building bridges with people is find those connections with people 
those things that maybe they don't, aren't aware of themselves. Now, these bridges that we want to build for people can be what's called heart bridges or head bridges. What's a heart bridge? A heart bridge is like a heart longing. Pascal says God has designed us in such a way that we have this God-shaped vacuum, right? And we try to fill it with all these things, and nothing can fill it except a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's a heart bridge. God created us in a certain way. And Solomon talked about this. I mentioned this earlier. That God has set eternity in the hearts of men. That's a hard bridge. Yet they cannot fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. Let me give you an example of a heart bridge. One day I was doing this training in uh, Malaysia with a campus ministry. And one of the staff there was of a Hindu background. And here's what he said to me. As a little Hindu boy, he, he realized something about Jesus. He realized that when... Jesus died on the cross. He said, Father, forgive them of their sins, for they know not what they do. And he realized for Jesus to say that, there had to be something supernatural about him. And that was a heart bridge for him as a little Hindu boy that led him eventually to become a Christian. See, in the world that equates fundamental beliefs with terrorism, We need to help people understand that Jesus taught that we are to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. See, that's a heart bridge, isn't it? Let me tell you personally what's a heart bridge for me. Some of you don't know this, but when my son Jonathan was one year old, he should have died. My son Jonathan has a rare immune deficiency that has no cure to it. There's no cure to it. But what we did is we went to a church that had a healing ministry in Singapore, and they prayed for him, and the next day his fever left and never came back. And one other person that had the same immune deficiency died about two years ago. So when I'm talking to a non-believer, and I'm trying to build a bridge to the gospel, I'm going to share my story about my son. God saved my son. God has a purpose for my son. And the doctors pronounced him cured two years later. They have no way to explain it. It's a miracle. It's a hard bridge. And there are things that God does in your life that are extraordinary. Those are the things we need to build with our non-believing friends. Those are the things we need to share with them to help them see how Jesus can make a difference. I remember talking to a student after 9-11 who said this, I don't believe in an afterlife. I don't believe in heaven or hell, but I think the terrorists are going to be held accountable for what they did. What was his heart longing for? His justice, right? So in other words, we need to build hard bridges with people. They long for certain things. And we need to help them to see that Jesus can actually help fulfill those heart longings. You know, the Apostle Paul understood this principle of building hard bridges. Listen to what he says here 
in 1 Thessalonians 2, 5 to 8. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is, is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Now listen to this. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our very lives. Because you had become very dear to us. See, it's not just the gospel that we need to share with people. It's our lives. It's how God works in our lives. Remember what I said yesterday? You may be the only Bible that anybody ever reads. And the question is, what are people learning from our life? Those are heart bridges. And once, here's what I've discovered. When people can begin to see heart bridges in our life, then I can more effectively build head bridges. In other words, people may care how little I know until they know how much I care. And so if they can see Christ in my life and see the difference he's made, then I can talk about what makes Jesus different. I can talk about the evidence for God's existence if somebody needs answers to those kinds of questions, or the evidence for the resurrection, or the evidence for the reliability. Those are head bridges, and we can do that, but I've discovered practically that we have to build heart bridges with people before some people will even hear what we have to say about Jesus and what makes him different. Now, let me just kind of put this all together, because I believe that when you and I are building bridges with people, we need to build heart bridges and head bridges. And here are some bridges, planks, that you can use in building bridges with people. Let me just go through these real quickly. First, what you believe will affect how you live. We learned that after 9-11, right? Secondly, not all religious viewpoints can be right. Not all religious viewpoints can be right. And here's a little phrase I've used. Either Jesus is the only way, truth, and the life, or he's not the only way, the truth, and the life, but he can't be both. If my wife, Charlene, were standing here and you were to ask her, is she pregnant? And she said no, and I said yes. What would you think? Something's wrong with him. Because <laughs> my wife is either pregnant or she's not pregnant, right? In a similar way, Jesus Christ either is the only way or he is not the only way. He can't be both. And these are things we need to help people understand. Third, faith must have an object to have merit. remember talking to a student on a college campus once. She claimed to be a Christian. Here's what she said to me exactly. She said, I have many different objects of my faith. And so here's the question I asked her. I said, do you have faith in elevators? She said, sure. I said, but don't you check and make sure there's a floor there before you step in the elevator? And she said, no, I just go. I said, but don't you think it's a good idea to check to see if there's a floor there before you step in the elevator? She said, essentially, that would be a good idea. So I said to her, it's not only important that we have faith, but we have faith in the right object. And she said, yes, I would agree with that. In other words, she realized that faith has to have a valid object. What's important is not faith itself, but faith in the right object. Do you realize the Barna Research, a Christian research firm, has discovered that one out of every four born-again Christian believes it doesn't matter what you faith you follow because they all teach the same lessons. Something is wrong with our thinking, right? 
Because Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, what? Your faith is in vain. So your faith is only as valid as the object in which it's placed. Fourth, not all religious leaders made equal claims. Who made claims like this? I'm without sin. I've always existed. I'm the only son of God. I'm the light of the world. I have authority to forgive sins. I was born to testify to the truth. You trust in God. Trust also in me. I am the truth and the only way to God. I will come again to judge the world. Jesus. He is the only one that has these kinds of credentials. But it's not just that he has these unique claims. The proof of Christ's claims have no parallel among major religious leaders. You see, there's a tendency sometimes for people to say that comparing Christianity and other religions is like comparing apples with apples. And what you and I need to do is help them understand that it's not. There is no comparison. Let me illustrate this. One day I was on a plane talking to a guy here in the U.S., and I found out he grew up in a, uh, a church environment, and but no one had ever given him any evidence for the Christian faith. He grew up in church, but no one had given him evidence. And so I started giving him some of the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he stopped me and said, well, what about Buddha? And what about Muhammad? Now, why do you think he raised that? Do you think he thought that they had just as valid credentials? I don't think so. I think he was feeling the conviction of the Spirit of God and to use a baseball analogy, he was trying to lower the playing field so that Christianity was no better than any other religion because he didn't want to be accountable and say that he should, he should basically agree and accept Christianity. So here's a little phrase I want you to learn. Buddha claimed to point to the way. Muhammad claimed to be a prophet of God. But Jesus Christ is the only major religious leader who ever claimed to be God, and he, then he did three things to prove it. He fulfilled prophecy, lived a sinless life, he died on the cross and rose from the dead. Now that little phrase is what we call Christian apologetics. This is like evidence that we would use in helping someone to see what's so different about Jesus than other people. And it's just a little, little phrase. But I can't, I, can't, I can't tell you how many times I use a little phrase like this in my conversations with people to help them to see that, yes, Jesus is unique. Because he did three things. He fulfilled prophecy that was written hundreds of years before he ever existed. He died on the cross and rose from the dead. And he's the only major religious leader who ever claimed to be God. Buddha didn't claim to be God. Muhammad didn't claim to be God. Only Jesus Christ. And he provided evidence. And then, so the last point is this. Without God, some people find it difficult to find meaning in life. Dostoevsky said it this way. If God is dead, anything is permissible. And unfortunately, the death of God leads to the death of man. Because under Hitler, we saw 12 million killed and under Stalin, 18 million. Now, I want you to see something here. Look at these six points. These six points are either head bridges or heart bridges. Number one, what you believe will affect how you live. That's a heart bridge. Do you see that? Number two, not all religious viewpoints can be right. That's a head bridge. So number one was a heart bridge. Number two is a head bridge. Number three, faith must have an object to have merit. That's a head bridge. Number four, not all religious leaders made equal claims. Head bridge. 
Five, the proof of Christ's claims have no parallel among major religious leaders. Again, headbridge. Last one, without God, some people find it difficult to find meaning in their life. That's a heart bridge. So what I'm trying to suggest to you that is as you build bridges with people, you need to look for building both heart and head bridges to help them take steps to the cross. So find common ground, build a bridge, build a bridge from a point of shared beliefs, even those they're not aware of. And then the third point is this, remember the goal. You see, I think sometimes when we're talking to non-believers and we get into heated discussions, we forget the goal. <laughs> And we win the battle, but we lose the gore, the war. So don't get so caught up in removing barriers that you forget the goal. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9.22? I've become all things to all people so that by all means I might save some. That's the goal. The goal is to remove the obstacle so that we can help people take a step towards Christ every day. Amen? And then the last point is actively seek for opportunities to transition to the gospel. I want to close this morning by telling you a story. It's a true story. Remember I said that some people who don't believe in God find it difficult right, to find meaning and purpose in their life? Well, this is one of those kind of stories. Now, I share this story with you not because I want you to feel sorry for me, I share this story because I want you to know that we don't know how much time we have with people. Let me give you a background. You see, my sister Rhoda was a few years younger than me, and growing up, she went to church with us. But, you know, when she became an adult, you know what happened to my sister? She threw out her belief in God and Christianity. The problem is when she did that, she... She found it difficult to find meaning and purpose in her life, and she got more and more depressed. And then she pushed us, her family, out of her life, basically. And tragically, 12 years ago, my sister Rhoda committed suicide. And I don't know to this day where my sister is. I don't know if she's in heaven. I can't say that for a fact. Now, you may not know anyone like my sister Rhoda who's committed suicide. But you know what? All of us know people every day that are dying a little bit inside. And we need to care enough about these people that we do whatever it takes before it's too late. You know, I don't have any more chance with my sister. Her fate has been decided when I get to heaven. I'm, I'm going to find out. But you have an opportunity in your circle of influence to make a difference. May I encourage you to make the most of the time because you don't know how much time you have. Let's close in a word of prayer. With every head bowed and every eye closed this morning, I, I want to make two invitations this morning. Maybe you've heard the message this morning and you've gone to church all your life with every head bowed and every eye closed, but you've never really put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You never believed in Christ. And this day, you feel the Spirit of God is calling you to make that decision so that your destiny is secure. And this morning, the Spirit of God is calling you to, to make that decision. Would you simply indicate that by just raising your hand and saying, Brother Geisler, would you pray for me? I realize I've been putting off this decision. I need to make this decision today. Simply raise your hand and put it down. Yes.
destiny most. You've been going to church for a long time, but you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But you, you don't want to face a Christless tomorrow. You make that decision now. Just simply raise your hand. Maybe you're a Christian, and you've been a Christian for a long time, and there are a lot of people in your circle of influence that you know are non-believers, and you've been convicted by the message this morning that time is running out. Would you simply raise your hand and say, Brother Geisler, would you pray for me? I want to be a more effective witness in my circle of influence from this day forward. Simply raise your hand and put it down. Many of you. God is convicting you that you need to take that next step forward, whatever it is. Whoever he wants you to speak to, would you be willing to do that? Simply raise your hand. Say, God, I want to take that step today. Father, thank you for our time this morning. Lord, I thank you for Jesus and the supreme sacrifice that he's made for us. Lord, in all the things that you continually do for us each and every day, the miracles you perform in our lives, to show that you love us, you care about us, you think we're special. God, would you help us to communicate this message of hope and love to a world who desperately needs to hear the good news? And God, would you give us greater understanding of how to do that in the days and weeks ahead, that you would help us to understand how every day and in every way we can help non-believers to take one step closer to Jesus Christ? Lord, I pray that someday we'll get to heaven and we will meet someone who will say to us, I'm in heaven because so-and-so shared Christ with me, who was shared by so-and-so, who was shared by so-and-so, who you shared Christ with. And the reason I'm in heaven is because of your obedience to Jesus Christ. And I just want to thank you for your obedience. God, give us that kind of perspective, Lord, that every day we can impact eternity. We thank you for our time this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.